Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for welcoming the Holy Spirit here today. And uh, obviously what we do uh, each Sunday morning is to sort of help us uh, learn together how to do that every day of the week, right? And, and the whole point of the prayer you just sang is that we would be more aware of His presence in our lives. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. And I have to tell you right up the top, I'm not an expert in this because anybody that claims they're an expert in this isn't still learning what it means to have the, you know, cooperate with the Holy Spirit in their life. Uh, but I, I did have an experience this week uh, that kind of reminded me of a moment. I don't, I don't hear from the Holy Spirit every single day. I don't hear from God every day. I'm better than I used to be, okay? So, but, but I'm not sure that that's the nature of the Christian life anyway. Every day I get a word from the Lord or whatever. Uh, but uh, I, I did kind of become aware of an event that happened a couple years ago because I, I had to go downstairs and clean out my study, okay? I have a, a study there, but that desk there had been piled with books and papers and files, and, and so I was cleaning it off this week, and underneath a big stack of stuff, uh, I found a sticky note that my daughter, youngest daughter, Jessica, had written me just before she got on the plane to go over to England uh, for a couple of years to uh, get a master's degree. And it was a really sweet note. I mean, about I love you, and I'm going to miss you, and I'm not going to read it for you because it's personal. But anyway, uh, we, I, I read this note again, and, I, and I, I did what I did the first time because she was already on the plane at this point uh, when I first found it. And I kind of sat back and go, oh. I hate days like this, you know. She's going away. I can't just pick up and drive to Seattle to fix her car anymore, you know. I, I, she's going to be beyond my control. Now, understand, she's a 30-year-old woman by this point, but I, I'm still her dad. And all the flashbacks came of dropping them off at college, all the kids. I'm like, oh, I hated those days. Or get, <laughs> I'm so bad. It was like the first day of first grade, taking them to the bus, you know, somebody else is going to be in charge of them for eight hours a day, and I got no power over it, right? And so I remember just, even two years ago, just saying, God, I, I, do you do this? I mean, I don't know how you do that, because, you know, it's a struggle, help me with this, and, and, uh, and, and the word came to me, it wasn't, it wasn't a voice or anything, but the thought came into my mind, it was that, and I think it was a spirit, it was a, what you're worried about is that you don't have control and you know, protection over her because you're not going to be able to see her every couple of months or every month, you know, because she's going to be far away, right? I said, that's exactly it. That's it. And the thought came into my head, when do you really have control anyway? Don't you think I've got control and I've got protection over her? Oh, uh, yeah. Which was a good thing to think about this week because periodically, and, and this week was one of the weeks, maybe you had this thought too, I don't know, uh, maybe you're a part of this generation, but it's like, you know, looking forward as the world gets crazier and crazier, do you ever start to wonder what's this going to be like for our kids and our grandkids? Like, you know, you know you, do, you, do you worry about that a little bit? I mean, let's be honest, that little moment of worry that, that, or, or, or season of worry, it happens to every generation usually when we get of a certain age, all right? The world is so different than what I knew it before and so forth and so on. But the reality is, is it seems more amped up, at least in a moral, cultural way. We've already talked about that enough. But it doesn't seem more amped up. But, <clears throat> but here's the thing. Increasingly, Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, like in the first century, are increasingly becoming um, accused of being the problem that our beliefs somehow are becoming part of the problem that's causing the outrage, that's causing the, uh, the frustration, that's causing the anxiety in our culture, right? you got to have somebody to blame, and just like in ancient Rome, they found us, right? That's not as bad as then, not even close. I mean, you know, who knows if it'll ever be that bad. But, but, <clears throat> but there is an increasing kind of storyline, narrative out there that it's us, that the, the, we're the source of the conspiracy. And that is half true. The half that's true is there is a conspiracy. The part that's not true is it's not us. It's Jesus. It's a divine conspiracy. Jesus is going to tell us today and has been telling us as we've been walking through John 13 to 19 on the way to the cross with Jesus that he was starting a conspiracy to take down the devil and to take down the, the powers that be that are messing up this world. And you see, 
Today, we want to get to a truth that is a, one of the most profound truths of our faith, of all Christendom, of, of every Christian's life. But it's not something that's easily seen with natural eyes. It just isn't. That's why we need to call the Holy Spirit and welcome the Holy Spirit in to help us see what it is. And that's why we started last week, or, or the second, series, second episode of the series, last week we said, hey, as we go to Easter, let's pray two prayers, one in the morning and one at night. And here's the one in the morning. I can't, you can. I can't, you can. And that's kind of what we're going to focus on today, because as we go through these passages where Jesus is teaching at the Last Supper and, and then on into the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he's arrested and goes into trial and so forth, he's teaching, he's preparing us for the fact that I can't, but, but man, under, you, you can't, but I can, he's saying to us. Okay, he's reversing that. But, and, and then there's, there's the reality, we're going to see this today too, but we're really focusing today on the I can't and he can. But the reality is also that we're praying that he will teach us the mystery of Christ in us. Teach me the mystery of Christ in me, because that makes all the difference in the world. And, and this relates to a phenomenon I've seen over the years many, many times as a pastor. I've seen it here in this church. In fact, some of you are sitting in this room. I've run across people who have extraordinarily difficult circumstances, who realize they're not going to go away like tomorrow or the next day, or it's not going to be like that. And so they decide to accept those circumstances as from the hands of God. And, and you, you maybe some, some people, if, if you live in this world very long, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Did you just say that trouble comes from the hands of God? Well, not exactly. But uh, there's a sense in which we need to accept the moments of our lives, regardless of what they are, as gifts from God, because he's got a purpose in it. You see, that's a key thing that Jesus is going to teach today. It's a key thing if we're going to learn to walk with Jesus in a way that prepares us for whatever's ahead. You see, this is the question that we're dealing with in this Onward series. How does walking with Jesus prepare us for a hope-filled onward. In fact, you know, it prepared the early disciples. This is what Jesus is doing. He is prepping, 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 prepping. This is a crash course in how to walk with Jesus when he's not here in bodily form. That's what we're looking at. Disciples are being prepped for the world that, that we live in today. And it can be all kinds of things that we face. We don't know, you know, the, the future, we don't know the future of our country. It could be that everybody's going to fall on their knees and worship God tomorrow. We don't know. The Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants. And, you know, if enough critical mass of people start praying for it, who knows, right? But here's, here's the thing. We do know that in, in this life, in this world, in this lost world that we live in, there is adversity ahead sometimes, somewhere, shape, or form. You may not need it now, but somebody in your life that you know does need it. And here's the guarantee. File away what, or write down what we're talking about today and file it away because someday you will need it, Right? And, 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 you know, it could be a, a physical challenge. It could be a financial challenge. Uh, it could, you know, we're coming up on April 15th. It could be uh, uh, a loss of, you know, the dreams. The world's not going to turn out, the, or your life's not going to turn out exactly the way you envisioned it or dreamed it. I mean, that was certainly true of the disciples. They thought Jesus was going to set up this new kingdom and things were going to be awesome. And it, it could be a moral challenge more and more. You know, the choice, a moral choice you have to make. It, can, it could be... Um, you know, being made fun of your, from your, for your faith. It could be any one of those challenges uh, in, in any, any situation. And rather than run, what Jesus is trying to teach us to do is what the New Testament people did after he went to the cross and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And that's what he's trying to teach us, uh, learn, because as you look at that, they are such an encouragement. I mean, they're such an inspiration as you look at their lives. Instead of just bolting and running, they decided to follow Jesus anyway, and they weren't put off by the seeming silence from God or the answers to prayer that were no instead of yes. Because they had this sense that God was up to something, that maybe there really was a divine conspiracy. And what they really got in on, and, and please understand me, that this is sort of the theme of where Jesus is going to go today, and I'm not insisting or I would never insist as a pastor that somehow you just accept this because you got to pray this one through. I recognize that. 
But here's what they did. This is the principle that Jesus is trying to teach. To receive adversity or challenges as a gift with a purpose and a promise. That God's got a purpose for it, but he's got more than that. A promise for right now in the midst of it and on the other side of whatever that adversity is. Now, again, I'm not insisting that you do it, but I will say this. If we're to be on the right side of the divine conspiracy, we need to understand that and we need to accept it. And that's why I'm bringing it up. That's why we're sort of doing a deep dive in these, these series. That's why we're kind of taking a shift here from, you know, all the sweetness and light, these last couple of uh, message series, and we're moving toward, hey, how do we prepare for whatever is ahead? Whatever is to come. And I know that flies in the face of what we hear every day in the culture. It flies against the greatest moral value of our culture. You know what that is? It's in our Pledge of Allegiance. They put it with the word liberty, remember? Liberty and comfort for all. Oh, wait, no, that was, that was liberty and justice for all. But that really, have that comfort, you know, is been elevated, right? Because what are we hearing more and more said? You know, especially on college campuses sometimes. You're making me feel uncomfortable. That's not right. I'm going to my safe room. You know, in other words, you're an immoral person because you've made me feel uncomfortable with something you've said or done or whatever, you know. And granted, you know, we're not talking about the really horrible things, the abuse that goes on because that, we're talking about just discomfort. That has been elevated to the point of morality and it affects how people see God and therefore, because, because therefore, if God doesn't, you know, run at our beck and call to be, you know, take us out of our discomfort at every single moment of life, then somehow he can't be a moral God. He can't be a good God. And frankly, that's what's messing us up. And interestingly, I think that's what Jesus is going after, that idea that somehow God should be at our beckoned call to, to address every little thing that we ask him to address, regardless of what his purposes and plans are, that somehow he's going after that. He's saying, that's taking you down a road that's not healthy. That's taking you down a road that's hurtful. That's taking you down a road that will ruin your spiritual life. So I invite you to open your Bibles so we can talk about the good news of that. In John chapter 14, we're going to start at verse 15, and, and let me just kind of catch you up where he's been uh, since the end of uh, 13, where we looked at last week, because there's a very well-known passage between, um, particularly the first part of chapter 14, when Jesus starts off chapter 14, says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Did you know Jesus invented that phrase? Let not your hearts be troubled? Sean Hannity did not invent that phrase. Jesus invented that phrase. Nothing against, I'm not saying anything about it one way or another. I'm just saying that was Jesus' phrase. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare uh, my father's house. There are many mansions, or many rooms rather. And, 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 and I'm, you're going to have a spot in it. And they're still asking, Philip's still asking, ah, why can't we go with you? We were really expecting that to happen all here, right now. Can't we just go with you? And Jesus then makes that powerful, if famous statement, but we gloss over it way too much. We talk about it all the time because it is core to the gospel. It is core to the good news of Jesus. He says, don't you understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And anyone, no one comes to the Father except through me. So he's kind of gotten them on that page. And now he starts to talk about what's going to happen next and what you need to do and how you live and not just survive, but thrive. How do you flourish in lost world after I'm not here in bodily form anymore? Is it going to be better? Is it going to be worse? How are you going to deal with that? And so he starts off with a kind of an interesting way, a way that I wouldn't think of and probably maybe you wouldn't think of in verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, when you hear that, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What does it do for you inside? Because I think human nature, human nature that's been touched by sin, that is the anti-God allergy, kind of pushes back on that. Doesn't, isn't there something inside you that goes, oh, that's, that's kind of like the man telling me, you know, if you, you will love me, you'll keep my commandments. But that's not what he's saying, is it? But think about it this way, just before we let that go too quickly. 
How did they hear it? I mean, they're sitting here in this place knowing something ominous and really big is about to happen. And Jesus has told them three times he's going to die on a cross. They're not believing him because they can't even factor that in. That's too horrendous to contemplate. But they're starting to realize, you know, after Judas ran out of the room, that somehow this is going to be, uh, you know, big. This is going to be hard. And he says, if, when, when we get through this, when we get into this, keep my commands. And you will if you love me. Why is he saying that? What's he saying that for? Well, one of the ways to think about this is, is this. You know, a lot of people, maybe you've heard this, maybe you've thought this, you know, but, but, but people will say, you know, it would just be easier to follow Jesus if I could have lived back then when he was actually here with skin on. You know, that, that would just have been so much easier. It was so much better. I mean, he would have made everything good, and when I didn't know what to do, he would teach me something, and then, you know, if I screwed up, he'd be an encourage me, and he'd pat me on the bottom, and whatever, you know? But that's not the case. For two reasons, we know for a fact that's not the case because of what's about to happen. The disciples, who have been walking with Jesus for three years, almost all of, him, all of them desert him at some point. Even John, the writer of this gospel, he comes back at the resurrection when nobody else, or at the crucifixion when nobody else does, but even he runs away in the garden. His people, the people that were closest to him and loved him the most, at, when he was in that bodily form, ran. They turned. They abandoned him at some point. And secondly, the people who did betray him did so to his face. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you think of Judas, right in his face, right in his presence, they walked away. So that kind of presence can't be the end all. Peter, even, he's walked with Jesus three years, and he gets to the point where, I'll lay down my life for you. But when it comes, push comes to shove, he doesn't do it. He says, I don't know him. Three times. So it, can't, it couldn't have been easier. You see, how did Judas go about this? How did he fall in love with money more than his Lord? It didn't happen overnight. He didn't wake up on the day of the Last Supper and go, you know what? I think I'll betray Jesus. Didn't do that. It, took, it was an incremental thing, right? That's the way it always works in human nature. There's a, there's a British uh, academic, and he's a, a, a literary critic and a social theorist and, and um, uh, so forth. And he's, he's written books on postmodernism, post-Christian uh, world that we live in. And he has one statement that I just want to pull out and throw up here on, on, the, on the screen that explains a lot to me. He says, societies that become secular, in other words, reject God completely. They become secular when it, uh, not when they dispense of religion altogether, but when they are no longer especially agitated by it. Isn't that true? I mean, you don't someday wake up and go, you know, this circumstance is too hard, and, you know, it's almost never in the midst of the circumstance that you do. And it's, and it's almost never in, a, you know, just sort of a willy-nilly, hey, I think I'll go a different direction, want to buy a new house, start a new religion, whatever, you know. It's not like that. It's incremental, and it, you, and it starts with becoming less agitated or less inspired or less moved, let's put it that way, less moved by what you believe and the faith that you believe. And that's, you know, part of what, what um, Jesus wants to get through is you stick with me. You love me. Love me, and here's how you love me, by keeping my commandments. I want you to still be with me, and I will be with you. But in order for you to understand that and see that, you got to keep my commandments. you gotta, you got to do my teaching. you got to live the way I've taught you to live because that's how you'll see it. That's how your life will change. That's how you get in on the divine conspiracy of what's going on behind the scenes that most people in their lives will never see. Most people will never understand it. That's the secret sauce. That's how it happens for you. And that's how it will happen for you. And so he starts off with this thing about, you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And then he moves on to explain kind of what that means. Look what he says in verse 16. And I will ask the Father, you keep my commands, and here's what's going to happen. Uh, you, in other words, you follow my teaching, you live with me, for me. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you 
forever. You will not be alone. Verse 17, the Spirit of Truth, capital S. So what we understand right away is that what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. And just like everything Jesus teaches, there is so much we could pull out of this one sentence, but we just don't have time. So I'm going to pull out one thing that maybe you've heard before, but it's really important going forward for all of us to be on the same page and on the same kind of wavelength of what Jesus is saying. And he gives us a clue in one word here about where he's headed and what he's talking about. And it's that word advocate, advocate. So I'm just going to pull out that word advocate because advocate is a name for the Holy Spirit. It can be translated a couple different ways. I'll show you in a minute. But it's the Greek word paraclete, which is made up of two Greek words. Para means alongside, and klesis, which means called, or kaleo, which means called alongside. So the Holy Spirit is, Jesus is calling alongside of us to do what? Well, for one thing, to be our advocate, which is sort of the legal thing, which means when we stand before God, uh, uh, when, when the, in the courtroom of God, when, when our name comes up, whether it's now or in the final days, whenever it is, the Holy Spirit will say, hey, that's one of us. That's a redeemed one. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, he'll say, that's, that's, that's our, one of us. We need to send some forces there. We need to help them out. We need to support them. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's an advocate, just like a legal advocate. And, and the Holy Spirit is also um, a, a comforter and a helper. You could translate it that way, which is, which is more practical. Which, that's the part we love and we should love because that's what we experience day to day, every day. Helping us and, and comforting us. Not only comforting, but helping us keep going, helping us move, and helping us flourish in life and, and have a, 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 a kind of our heads in the right place. All of those things. But also, he's, a, he's a, um, a truth teller. A truth teller about what's really going on inside of us. And so the, the truth telling of Jesus, or of the Holy Spirit rather, is someone who knows more than you and I know what's really in here. You know, if you've ever started a business, or let's put it this way, if you've ever turned around a business, if you've ever... Uh, been a part of a church that's seen, you know, gone from sort of deadness to life. Uh, if you, well, if you're a Christian and you, you've experienced the whole deal of repentance, because that's what happens, is you recognize the truth about yourself. You, you know, you define, you, the Holy Spirit defines reality for you in your heart, and then you turn around and you go another direction. That's the first step to transformation and change. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. It helps us define reality internally. And, and uh, for example, David in the Psalms, over and over again, he prays, search my heart, search my heart, search my heart. What he's praying for is define reality for me, define reality for me. And let me just ask a question that I've asked myself as I've studied this this week. Have you, have you prayed that prayer lately? God, search me and help me know my heart so I'll know where to go. Help me define reality about what's really real. That's the practical outpouring of it, but at the very least... What Jesus is saying here in sending us the advocate, helper, truth teller is he's saying that the divine conspiracy doesn't start out there. It starts in here, in this room, in our church, in the body of Christ, uh, wherever the body of Christ might be, and in individual believers' hearts. That's where the renewal starts, and it spreads and explodes from there. It moves out from there. That is what puts us on the right side of, um, of the divine conspiracy, if you will. And, and s- still, these, these disciples <clears throat> need some further explanation on this. And so in verse 17, after saying that this advocate is the spirit of truth, Jesus goes on in the last half of the verse, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you <coughs> And will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. He uses the term him, notice, and he three times in in that first verse. And this isn't a, a male or female thing so much. This is a more to the point that he is personal. That he is not an it. 
that he's not the force to be with you. This is a person. It is the personal God who is a part of our lives. In other words, this conspiracy, this divine conspiracy, is a conspiracy of presence. There's people, people don't see him, but you see him. He's not in everybody, but he's in you. And that's the difference. He's there to help you. I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not leaving you as orphans. Verse 20, and on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you, will see, and you are in me, and I am in you. And whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Which, <clears throat> you look at that, and you, you go, wow, wait, you know... Um, so, so, so what you're saying is, is you're going away, but you're going to be here in a more powerful way than you were then? That apparently is what he's saying. He's saying that he is with us now, that is in the 21st century, more than he was with them at the, around that table at the Last Supper in that upper room at that time. And he was more with them after post-resurrection than he was that before he was deeper, more accessible then, now than then. You see, we live in the post-resurrection era. It's the only post-anything era that's a good thing. You know, post-modernism, post-Christian, post-despair, whatever they want to call it. Post-resurrection means that there's a presence of Jesus through his spirit that is moving and always working and not everybody sees it, but that's why you call it a conspiracy. It's sort of behind the scenes. And people that know him, they see it. They experience it. And that's what Jesus is promising here, that post-resurrection life. Now, understand, <clears throat> these poor disciples are still sitting here. They're trying to take it in. I mean, we have the advantage of having read this and thought about this and lived the Christian life. And they're going, okay, okay. And in fact, they're, they're in a state that maybe you've been in, I've been in it. I call it confusion in search of an explanation. All right? They're just kind of... <laughs> What is, what do you say? Could you just please explain it to me one more time, right? And so, you know, one of the brave ones, a guy named Judas, speaks up and he asks a question, verse 22. Then Judas, not, a, not Judas Iscariot, <laughs> if your name's Judas, you want him to know it's not Iscariot, right? <laughs> and maybe, he, maybe he went over to John, hey, John, 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 if you ever write this down, because you're writing stuff down all the time, don't use my Judas name, all right? Because Judas just ran out of the room. He said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Interesting thing about this Judas. His, his name is also Jude. You could, you, that's another form of his name. In fact, tradition has it that this uh, Jude, this man, was the one who wrote the book of Jude, the one-page book, one-page letter in the New Testament just before Revelation. Powerful, powerful little letter. If you haven't read it for a while, it'd be good because it's very up-to-date. But Jude is probably the disciple that another list is called Thaddeus. That's also part of tradition. And what we don't know this for sure, but what is also a part of tradition, church tradition from the early days, from the early church fathers, is that this Jude was also the brother of Jesus, just like James. Not this James, but James that writes the, writes the open letter. Okay? So Jude, possibly, we don't know for sure, was the brother of Jesus. So just think about this. What would it take for you to look at your brother and say, Lord? Think about your brother. If you don't have a brother and you have a sister, that's okay. Think about selling her, okay? That, there's something big is going on here. And secondly, what you don't know about Jude is something because of the part of the Christian, the Christian uh, Christendom that we are, the flavor that we are of Christendom. We're on the Protestant side of things. And we don't do saints like other parts of the church, right? We... we, we um, 
Look at the New Testament, and we see that the letters in the New Testament especially call all people that are followers of Jesus, all the whole body of Christ who are true followers of Jesus, calls them hagias, or saints. So that's why we say that. But just like everything that gets thrown out, uh, when we throw that out, we, we tend to forget to keep the stuff that is, would be good to keep. And, and therefore, uh, the Eastern Church and the Catholic Church have sort of kept this sainthood thing, and you know, the beatification of saints. And what they've kept that we have kind of let go of is that what these people are remembered for, Jude is a saint, an official saint, obviously, you know, all the apostles are, in the Catholic and the Eastern Church. And what they're remembered for is why they have this sainthood. And what Jude is remembered for is that he is the patron saint of desperate cases and lost causes. Desperate cases and lost causes, like pretty much all of us at some point in life. Like, like every Christian throughout the centuries ever since. Like many of the people driving by on Sunnyside Road right now, lost causes and desperate cases. That's who this man probably was. So you look at that and you can begin to see why he would ask this question, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? I can imagine Jude, if he is the dude for, you know, desperate cases and Lost causes, looking around the room and realizing lost cause, lost cause, desperate, lost cause, lost cause, and going, Jesus, if you're expecting us to get the message out, how is that supposed to happen? Why don't you show the world yourself? Just do it. What do you, see what he's saying? He's actually asking, look, Jesus, we can't, but you can. Why don't you can? You know, that kind of thing. Right? That's what he's saying. And so you start to see it in a different light, you know, and, and he's kind of tracking with Jesus. He's getting him. He's understanding him. Even with all the childhood flashbacks of how he played marbles with Jesus or whatever, right? So he's even in the midst of all that, he's still saying, you know, I'm tracking with you, but wouldn't this be a better plan? And so Jesus replies, not by shutting him down, but by acknowledging that that's a good question. Look what he says. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Okay, that's the third time you've said that, Jesus. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home in them. So let me just answer the question. I will show the world who I am, but I'm going to do it by you, through you. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Think about that. You know, he says, I'm going to come back in a powerful, powerful way. And by the way, he comes back in a powerful way to this statement in John 17 when he prays for us. Did you know that you and I are in the Bible? We are. A couple places, but one of the places when Jesus prays. Come back the week before Palm Sunday and I'll show you. But what he's saying here is, I'm not abandoning you because you need to understand something. The divine conspiracy that God has been up to since Adam and Eve lost the garden and the world went into lost world mode, the promise that I would stomp on the head of Satan, the way I'm working that and the way you're going to work it with me, it's going to be fun because most people will never, ever expect it. And the devil won't see it coming until it's too late. And I will be here in just, in fact, in more powerful way, bringing the kingdom to fruition and making all things new, including you and you and you and you and you and you and me. That's who he said. That's how the divine conspiracy works. And that's why he's saying, I'll be in you and I'll come back and, and I will show the world. But it'll be how you make it, how you thrive, how you flourish, even in the midst of the lost world. And then he kind of summarizes everything he said. So I'm going to move quickly through these next verses because I want us to get to the punch, the shocking, surprising promise at the end. Verse 25, all of this I have spoken while uh, still with you, but the advocate, see that's capitalized, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. And, and uh, do not let your hearts be troubled, says this again. And do not be afraid. Don't worry about it. We've got this. I've got this. The Holy Spirit has this. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and myself, God himself, all three in one, we've got this. And the, the peace that he's talking about here, I can't, can't go into too much detail because we don't have time, but it's a peace that means, ah, in the midst of whatever is out there and swirling around. It means regardless of the circumstances, you're above it. And, and, and to put it in, in the way that I like to say it, it's surfing over the top. It's a piece that goes, God's got this, man. I wouldn't want to be down there. And I'm in the midst of going through this choppy water right now, but he's got this. And, you know, one of the things that we need to understand here, too, is that, and something I've got to say, and in fact, maybe you've wondered about this as we've gone along in here, and before we get too far into this whole series, I need to make a footnote, and you really need to know this, so if you're dozing, uh, wake up right now, because you need to hear this. Maybe you've thought, or maybe rather you've been told, that you're going through this adversity, or you're going through this situation, or this challenge, or whatever it is, because you don't have enough faith. What this proves is that is a bunch of pucky. You know why? Because if you were sitting there at that table and looking around the table, is there one person there knowing what they were about to go through for the sake of Jesus? Is there one person there that you would say, well, I've got more faith than them? Not one. And yet they went through it anyway. Right? They, they went through it anyway. And so how can you say there's enough faith? And besides that, the whole idea that we can somehow faith Jesus into changing everything and moving the culture just for our own needs and desires, that somehow we can faith God into anything, reveals that we have a very wimpy meister view of who God actually is. That he's sitting around going, oh, I hope they don't ask me for anything too hard, you know? Is that the kind of, I don't want to follow that God, and that's not the kind of God Jesus is displaying here. And so, no, of course we can't faith God into anything. So it's not about your faith. It's not about my amount of faith. It's about having faith in Jesus and living out the teaching that he taught us, living out his commands and obeying him in that way. That's when we'll see him. And so in verse 28, he summarizes. He heard me, you heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So it's a great thing. But not only that, I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll still believe that I am with you, just like I promised. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world, we know who that is, is coming, and I'm going to have to do some battle here. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that he, but the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And then John adds something that none of the other gospel writers do at the end of the Lord's Supper. In the upper room, he says, come on, let's go. So Jesus keeps teaching as they walk over to Gethsemane. But you see three promises in here. You see one promise is, you will see me even in the midst of adversity. And beyond the adversity, you'll see that I'm still with you. You will have a new life. Th things, you'll be so transformed, you will uh, rise above things you never thought were possible. You'll have victory over things you never thought possible. And thirdly, there's a theological point here that every Christian needs to understand. Jesus and the Father are one. The Trinity is one. It's all one God. And that one God is somehow one with us. If we live with him and keep his commands, if we live out his teaching. And the reason he makes this point so strongly is because, you know, he's, he's basically saying, you know, the kingdom that you thought I was going to set up here on earth and just change everything and your life was going to be awesome from now on, you'd be all my, you know, like 12 uh, sub-kings and all this kind of stuff. It's different than you expected. I know it doesn't fit your dreams. It's different than anybody else out there who really can't see it understands a kingdom to be. It's kind of invisible to other people. But Bartholomew, James, John, 
Jude, Peter. You guys, you need to understand that you're going to go through some tough stuff here in, the, in these next days. And it will last, in their case, it will last for the rest of your life. But you need to know that we are going to do some stuff together that is going to be so powerful and so world-changing that people will name their children after you. John, people are going to call you or name their kids after you, and they're going to call their, their enemies, they're going to nick their enemy, nickname their enemies Judas. And by the way, Jude, I still love you, buddy. And I, I, you're, you're a part of this thing too. You just need to, to, to understand. But what I need to tell you is the answer to your question. Your question is, can, Jesus, can you just not keep me from all the, or can you just keep me from the, all the adversity? Can you just, you know, not let the world touch me? Just don't let the enemy lay a hand on me. Just, you know, just let us be sort of white knights riding uh, through the rest of history and just be all good and just take all the, can't you just do that? And he's got, he says, I got to tell you, the answer to that is no, because this conspiracy will never work that way. It'll be like a club. It'll be separate from everybody else, and the world will not change, but we got to change the world together. But here's the deal. It's a no with a promise, and the promise is all the Trinity will be present. It's a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery, but this is mystery too. All the Trinity will be present in you, will live in you. Maybe you went to Sunday school like me, and you uh, heard them tell you that Jesus lives in your heart, or like my kids would do, where does Jesus live? Lift up their shirt, here in my heart. That's actually more true to the Hebrew, but anyway, he's, he's saying, you know, I will live in you, and we will change the world together. I know that doesn't seem cool now, but on the other side of this, it's going to be crazy cool because you're going to see me do stuff that you haven't seen me do when I've been with you in bodily form. And I look at that, and that's why the, the New Testament disciples, the New Testament writers, the people of the New Testament that we read about, they are such an inspiration to me. They're such an opposite of, you know, unagitated Christian faith. It wakes me up when I think about what they've gone through. Because they lived through this to the end of their lives. You know, after the joy of the resurrection starts to sort of subside. And this includes Peter, I mean, uh, Paul and, and Timothy and people like that, Silas, Barnabas. After the joy of the resurrection subsides, they start to realize, okay, he's not coming back today, probably. In fact, I think maybe for the rest of our lives, I may be locked into this world the way it's lost right now. But I can see God doing some amazing things in the midst of it. I can see Jesus is still working through me because I'm still here. He's changed lives. People are still coming to Christ. And they start seeing the miracle of what Christ in me, the hope of glory, really means. And so what they do, instead of running away and trying to hide, which is our no normal human reaction, there's, there's nothing abnormal about that. They instead do the abnormal thing and they go not looking for trouble, but walking where Jesus leads them, and when they find adversity, they smear it all over and kind of wallow around in it a little bit, just like Jesus did when he went to the cross and saying, okay, all the glory, God, here you go, here I am. Do your stuff. And, 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 and you get all the glory, and bouncing back the glory to God the Father, which is exactly what Jesus did. You see, that's kind of an ex that was their expression of the first thing that you and I have to know regardless of what is ahead as we move onward. That was their expression of what the first thing that has to happen for us if we're to live with Jesus in this cultural moment. It is that you gotta embrace your inability as a prerequisite to experiencing Christ's ability in your life. We gotta say, I can't, you can. That's what they were trying to say. And some of us have experienced this. Some of us have seen this. I know people in this church. Maybe you know people in your family or in your life who have lived through adversity in such a way that when they walk into the room, if they can still walk, <laughs> that there's this sense of presence of God. It's like, oh, 
this is, there's something powerful happening in this person's life. You've, I've never known somebody like that? I've known a lot of them. And again, like I said, some of them in this church. And they say, well, you know, I, I didn't expect that. I didn't go looking for this adversity. But I can tell you what, God did something amazing through me. On this other side, I see it now. You know, that kind of person regardless of what's in the future of any of us, and they didn't know that was in their future at that time either, which I know some of us still kind of in our hearts, you know what, that's really not the self-help American way, to which the New Testament would say, the people of the New Testament would say, that's probably why you're not inspired or quote-unquote agitated about your faith either, because the Holy Spirit is here to comfort us, yes, but also to give us a push. And the reality is that, you know, when we realize this, we, we, there's something in us that kind of draws us to saying, you know, I want to be a part of that. I want to be on that side of the divine conspiracy, not the other side. I want to see God work like that in my church, in my family, in my life, in my kids. That's the reality that Jesus is trying to get us to. There's a, there's a spiritual writer, or was, I mean, he's, it's, he's the late Dallas Willard. He died a couple of years ago. Uh, powerful, powerful writer in the, in the realm of the spiritual life and beca- being a disciple and so forth. He wrote a book that's really a spiritual classic now. In, in 12 or 11 to 12 short years, it's become a classic, okay? And I mean right up there with, you know, John Bunyan and stuff like that. People are looking at this book and going, that, that is a powerful, powerful book about what it means to walk with Jesus. And uh, it, it's called Renovation of the Heart. And I, I think it's his best book. Uh, actually, he had wrote one other book I think is really good. He wrote all good books, but these are the top ones, okay? The other one is what's called The Divine Conspiracy. Have you ever heard that? That's because I stole the title for this message from that book. But, but I got to read for you The Renovation of the Heart, okay? Because there's something about it just in, in this quote, this couple of paragraphs, fairly long, but a couple of paragraphs that just goes, mm, yeah, that would be cool. Watch, look, watch this. The natural condition of life for human beings is one of reciprocal rootedness in others. As firmness of footing is the condition of walking and secure movement, so assurance of others being for us, as Jesus says, I'm for you, is the condition of stable, healthy living. Could the epidemic of addictions and dysfunctions from which the masses suffer possibly be related to the fact that we are constantly in the presence of people who are withdrawn from us and who don't want to acknowledge we are there and frankly would feel more at ease if we weren't? That's a good question. I don't mean to suggest that anyone can overcome our desperate social situation, the world we're living in now, by an individual act of will. Far from it. Whatever might be done, that isn't it. This is the world we now, know, we now have. To do anything of substance about it will require grace and wisdom that is at no individual's disposal and a long-range plan of personal and social development is required, like a divine conspiracy. No doubt God has one in mind. Watch this. But to make a start where we are, we must recognize that this, our world, is not normal. Our world is not normal. It's lost world. But is only usual at present. We must try to see it for what it is and then begin to think of specific ways grace and truth can begin to change it. And that's why we're doing this series, folks. You see, I hope you heard the promise of Jesus back in verse 20. We kind of skipped over it, but I'm going to bring it back here now. Jesus says, when you get out there, you don't know what you're going to face. But when you get to that point, there's going to be a moment where, you know, who knows what the point is, but there will be a moment in your future that on that day you will realize something. You'll realize, either in the adversity or maybe not adversity, but right when God knows that you need to realize it, right when you need your ticket of grace to get on the grace train, right at that moment, on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. You may not need that ticket right now, but you, you know you want to love Jesus, you want to follow him, you just keep that up. But when you need that extra piece of grace, that ticket, 
you file it away, you file this much away, you put it back, can you pull it back out and go, oh yeah, there's a grace ticket. And, and that ticket is that he is with me. It's, the, it's, it's a promise that's got a purpose. And we don't know the purpose yet. We're go, getting there. But it's a promise, and the promise is the promise of presence. So I'm going to call the band out here. And I just want to summarize all this in one statement that I encourage you to, to remember and to think about and consider this week. Whatever onward means, whatever's in the future, to move onward, we have to receive the challenges of life as the gift that they are. This is for Christians now. With a purpose and a promise made all the more certain by his presence. And that is what will heal our world. Jesus will heal our world through it. That is where we'll see his presence. And that is what will heal our souls from whatever is grieving us. Doesn't mean we don't go through grief. Doesn't mean everything's yippy skippy. Doesn't mean we go looking for trouble. It just means we are not afraid, as Jesus said, and we are not troubled. We have the peace because we've got the presence of the Almighty God living in us. Let me pray for us. And let's all pray together, actually. Heavenly Father, we do say to you, we can't, but you can. And I pray that you would teach us in these coming days the mystery, the wonder of what it is that you are in us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for not just abandoning us. Like you said, you didn't abandon us as orphans. You didn't leave us alone. But that you gave us <clears throat> not only this teaching, but you gave us ourselves and pointed us in the direction and showed us how we could live it. Help us to teach each other. Help us to live it for each other. Help us to call it out in each other and tell each other, you know what, I see Christ in you. I see, I see him doing some stuff. Thank you for being that example to me because most of the time we need people with us that will help us see it because sometimes it's hard to see in ourselves. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for that you will be with us and we thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to be in us and with us and remind us of all the things that you've taught us. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus, as always. We love you. Amen.